Do you, Baron Frankenstein, take this woman to be your bride? Do you promise to haunt her with old horror movies, toys, and comics? Yes, I want friend. Woman. Friend. And you, Baroness, do you take this man beast to be your lawfully bound husband? Do you promise to endure hours of unimaginable torture as he rambles about monster movies and long-dead actors? Close enough. Then by the power invested in me by Count Alucard, I now pronounce you supermates. supermates. You may bite or kiss the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Chris. And I'm Cindy. And uh, we are in part two of our House of Frankenstein series here today. Last time we talked about Universal's Bride of Frankenstein, so this time we're going to move forward a bit and jump from black and white into blood-soaked color with Hammer's 1958 opus, The Horror of Dracula. Hammer is, is seen by many as a successor to Universal when it comes to gothic horror monsters. By that time, Universal had shifted more to sci-fi-based horror movies. So Hammer was kind of going against the grain. Almost everything, every kind of monster movie was some nuclear-powered atomic giant ants and Godzilla and things like that. But they were going back to horror's gothic roots. Horror of Dracula was released in the U.S. on May 8, 1958. The team of director Terrence Fisher, writer Jimmy Sangster, and stars Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee had worked together the year before on Hammer's first gothic horror film, The Curse of Frankenstein, which obviously was their version of the Frankenstein story. Cushing had played Baron Frankenstein while Lee had played the monster. And it was a huge hit, so the natural follow-up was... Dracula. So they assembled the same team and got the same results, if not even greater results, out of this film. A lot of people think that, that Hammer actually made a deal with Universal from the get-go to remake their films. They actually didn't on these two. These two were just adaptations from the novels, mm -hmm. with this one being... It's still got a lot of changes from the novel, but it is based more on the novel than, say, the Bela Lugosi movie, which is based on the stage play more than the novel. Right, right. Uh, and in, in this one, um, uh, you know, we when we were talking about doing this, and I was thinking about, you know, what we wanted to cover, I, I like the Bela Lugosi Dracula. I have great respect for him as Dracula. But the film is kind of hard to set through. It's just very stagey. It's uh, stilted. It's stilted, yes. It... It definitely feels like a transition film between a talkie and a, a silent movie, even though, you know, a lot of silent movies were a lot more action-packed, like The Phantom of the Opera is actually more action-packed than Dracula is. Dracula feels, like a chunk of it feels like a film stage play. Not with this film, so that's why we picked this one, and I just, it's of, of the Hammer output, which I'm a big fan of. It's one of my favorites, so, so we'll jump straight into the story here. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. Is there no other way? But it's horrible. Please try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. Of course you're shocked and bewildered. How can you expect to understand in so short a time? But you've read 
and experienced enough to know that this unholy cult must be wiped out. I hope, perhaps, that you'll help me. I'll do anything you say. Thank you. The film opens as Jonathan Harker speaks to us from his diary. On the 3rd of May, 1885, he arrives at Castle Dracula, near the village of Kleisenberg. Harker finds the castle empty, except for a mysterious woman who seems to appear from nowhere. Harker introduces himself as the castle's new librarian, and the beautiful young woman immediately asks for his help in escaping Dracula, who has imprisoned her there. The woman quickly darts away as the ominous form of Dracula enters the room. After some quick and rather clipped introductions, Dracula shows Harker to his room. Before he leaves, he takes notice of a picture frame Harker has on his desk. The frame contains photos of Harker's fiancée, Lucy Holmwood, whom the Counts describes as charming. As Dracula leaves the room, he locks the door from the outside. Trapped in his room, Harker again takes out his journal. Through his writings, he reveals he has not come to the castle to be a simple librarian, but to destroy Dracula and end his reign of terror. Which, I'm sorry, this is where I have a problem with this. Okay. Because if you're undercover, why would you put the picture of your fiancé where this huge evil dude can see a picture of her? <laughs> it's like, here! See what see my future wife. I want you to know what my loved ones look like so you can take your revenge on me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on, that's just stupid. <laughs> this is his first stupid thing. Let's go farther, shall we? <laughs> Later in the evening, Harker encounters a strange woman again, and she once more begs for Harker's assistance. As he pledges to help her, the woman bears fangs and bites Harker on the neck. Just then a horrifying screech pierces the room, and Dracula enters with blood-soaked fangs and red eyes. The two vampires battle over possession of the stunned Harker, who briefly enters the fray only to be overcome by Dracula's strength. As Harker blacks out, he sees Dracula take his defeated concubine away. Awakening in his room the next day, Harker is horrified to realize he is a victim of vampirism, and soon will succumb to the awful bloodlust that plagued the undead. In his journal, he begs for someone to do what is necessary to release his soul. But before his transformation is complete, Harker sets out to destroy Dracula. Climbing from his window, he hides his journal near the roadway and proceeds to a small doorway into the castle's cellar. Finding the coffins of both Dracula and the woman, Harker drives a stake through her heart and she ages into an old crone before his eyes. But his action has alerted the sleeping Dracula and Harker is now at his mercy. Well, big duh. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. This is straight military tactics. If you have the advantage... You automatically take out your largest target first, and then worry about the little ones. I mean, hello! But then again, you wouldn't have had a movie or a whole series and all that jazz. I Can we that. save it for the note section and let me do the synopsis, please? Thanks. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Okay. Sometime later, Dr. Van Helsing appears at an inn in Kleisenberg, <laughs> searching for information concerning his missing friend, Harker. Despite the reluctance of the staff or villagers to speak of him, Van Helsing receives Harker's diary from a waitress who said it was found outside the castle a few days ago. The doctor journeys to Castle Dracula and is nearly overrun as a black hearse thunders by. He finds the castle empty but soon discovers the crypt and the vampirized but sleeping Harker. Van Helsing is forced to give his friend the piece he begged for and takes up a hammer and stake. And kills him. Yep. Van Helsing relays the news of Jonathan's death at the home of Arthur and Mina Holmwood. Arthur is quite frustrated with Van Helsing's unwillingness to tell them the whole story, 
His sister Lucy is far too ill and frail to relay that her fiancé is dead. That night, Lucy opens the windows and lays in bed in anticipation of a nocturnal visitor. She pulls at her nightgown's collar, revealing two puncture wounds on her neck. Her midnight suitor appears, and it is Dracula. Lucy seems both excited and repulsed as he bends over her. Bow, chicken, wow, wow. <laughs> the next morning, Lucy is worse, and her physician, Dr. Seward, can't say why, much to the consternation of young Tanya, daughter of the Homewood's maid, Gerda. When Van Helsing calls on Lucy at Mina's behest, the sick woman admits she somehow knows Jonathan is dead. Van Helsing's fears are realized when he finds the two wounds on her neck. Van Helsing orders Lucy's windows and doors locked, and garlic placed throughout her room. Later that night, a frantic Lucy begs Gerda to remove the garlic and open the windows, despite Van Helsing's orders. The maid complies, and tragedy ensues. By the next morning, Lucy is dead, and Van Helsing knows why. Now knowing they must learn the truth, Van Helsing leaves Jonathan's diary with Homewood. Some nights later, Tanya is brought home by a policeman. She had wandered from the house after following someone she believed to be Lucy. Having read Harker's diary, Arthur Homewood checks her coffin the next night to find it empty. He is horrified to see his dead sister arrive with young Tanya in tow. Van Helsing suddenly appears and holds Lucy at bay with a crucifix, sending her fleeing back into her coffin. With Holmwood's blessing and understanding, he later stakes her body, releasing her soul. Holmwood then pledges to help Van Helsing destroy Dracula. The two follow the trail of the hearse Van Helsing spotted leaving Castle Dracula in hopes of finding his coffin. Meanwhile, Mina is deceived into visiting an undertaker shop where Dracula awaits. When Van Helsing and Homewood follow their trail there later, the coffin is gone. Later, Homewood gives his wife a cross for protection, and she faints as it burns her flesh, proving she is in Dracula's thrall. The two vampire hunters keep a vigil outside Homewood Manor later that night, but Lucy still falls victim to the Prince of Darkness, who somehow comes from within the house. Only a transfusion from Arthur saves her life. Puzzling on how the vampire managed to get in past their watch, Gerda provides the answer by saying Mina forbade her from going into the cellar. There, Van Helsing discovers Dracula's empty coffin, and then Dracula himself, who flees with Mina. Van Helsing and Homewood give chase via a wild carriage ride through the night. When they arrive at Castle Dracula, the Count is burying Mina alive in a shallow grave outside. As Arthur rescues his wife, Van Helsing pursues Dracula inside his castle, and the two race across the labyrinth-like hallways. Cornered, Dracula attacks his enemy, and with his superhuman strength, nearly throttles him to death. As Dracula leans in for the killing bite, Van Helsing revives and pushes the monster aside. In a last desperate effort, he leaps for the curtains, and pulling them down, bathes Dracula in the rays of the rising sun. Dracula writhes in agony as his body crumbles to dust, with Van Helsing forcing him further back into the sunlight with a makeshift cross. Soon there is nothing left of him but a pile of clothes, his signet ring, and ashes, which blow away in the morning breeze. Now can I talk about <laughs> different plot points? Yes, when we get to them as we go along. Oh. <laughs> so, when the movie first out, the first thing you hit is with this awesome score by James Bernard, who did a lot of the Hammer music. It's just really bombastic and, and ominous. It's great. and That's why I, I use it in the the trailer that we did for House of Frankenstein. Another thing in the credits, you'll notice Peter Cushing gets top billing 
And really that's only fair because Christopher Lee's screen time is actually pretty limited. And according to IMDb, he's only got 13 lines. Hmm. I didn't go and count them myself. I saw it on there and I'm like, ah, close enough. It can't be much more than that. And actually, you know, Christopher Lee plays in quite a few Hammer Dracula movies. He doesn't say a whole lot in any of them. And in fact, in the next one, he doesn't say anything at all. But, well, it's more of a presence issue rather yeah, than... Yeah, exactly. Know. Yeah. So the opening, the credits, they, they pull us along toward that door. Uh, there's a doorway in the side as you enter the castle, and that's where the crypt is. And then you see the name Dracula on the coffin. And then there's the... You get our first glimpse of the, uh, the, the uh, requisite hammer blood, which is always a very bright paint-like... It looks like Tester's model paint. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, just, it's like not blood. It's not blood, no. <laughs> Jonathan Harker, you know, narrates the opening as in the, the uh, novel. The Dracula novel is actually told through journal entries by the different characters. Uh, so it's kind of a neat touch. And, uh, you know, he arrives there as the librarian. And in the book, he's a real estate agent. But actually, he's more than a librarian, which we've already... You know, established. Discussed, established, yeah. Hammer, one thing that really stands out in Hammer films is how great the sets look. I mean, they look like lavish, big-budget productions. They had a real knack for taking was probably a pretty small budget and really making it look like, you know, uh, Cecil B. DeMille production or something. It uh, Bernard Robinson was the set director. Uh, the art director, and, and he always did a great job. Castle Dracula, it doesn't, it's got a kind of unique look to it. It's not exactly the, you know, the stereotypical crumbling Halloween-y looking castle. It's got a, it's got a kind of a neat, a uh, neat, uh, vibe about it. Another thing about the whole deal with Harker there, the vampire woman, when she appears to him, he, he plays very coy. You know, you would think, you know, when she come up to him, he'd be like, yeah, I know this guy's a bad deal. You know, what's going on? You know, but he he plays it like he's just totally startled the whole time. And I I know at first that's so we don't know that he knows. Right. You know, but even later on, he still kind of keeps the pretense up. I personally think it's funny that she's got the Grecian gown on and showing, you know, I mean, I know the whole cleavage thing. You know, it's a hammer film. You got to show the cleavage. But, you know, her arms are bare and everything else. And like we've talked about, this is a cold climate. You know, mm-hmm. Dracula is dressed in a cape and everything else. Whereas the woman is in this Grecian outfit, which is completely out of, <laughs> you know, not in relationship to the area, the country that they're in. They're like, that. I do have a problem with that because it doesn't go with the country she's in and it doesn't go with the climate that she's in. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, wait a minute. Yeah, she does kind of stand out. I guess it's it's kind of, uh, I think Terrence Fisher has said, uh, the director has said that, that he looks at horror they movies. just to the prop room and said, well, this will work. Well, he looks as, he lo- he said he has said he looks at horror movies um, as fairy tales in a way, like adult fairy tales. So I guess in that way, there's a very dreamlike quality to what she's got on. So I guess it makes sense. No. But, well, but she had to show cleavage because it's hammer flick. You can show cleavage, it's but still Where like, appropriate, yeah, uh, to that area and to that, you know. Yeah, I have an issue with that. And, well, and we know she's she not wearing? super, super old because she doesn't, she turns into an old woman, not a skeleton. 
Right. So she's not like ancient, you know. She might be. Well, a, and that brings up an interesting point. Why does she suddenly want to get away from him if she's been with Dracula for, you know, 30 or 40 years? Well, I think she was just basically trying to get him in close so she could bite him. She was just telling him anything to, mm. you know, to, to come in. But here's the thing, you know, that really gets me. Okay, if Harker, as much as I love this movie, if Harker is there as an agent of Van Helsing, in, in league with Van Helsing to destroy Dracula, which I think is a really cool angle and a good way to move things along and, and get past a lot of, uh, you know, it, I mean, it established that Dracula's a bad dude. You, you're already, you know, it, it really does move the story along quicker. I like that angle. But why in the world didn't he, when he was going through the hallways, trying to chase whoever he heard open his door, why in the world didn't he take a, 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 cru a crucifix? And a stake and right. and so, a hammer and some tools, man. some tools of the trade, you know. Uh, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, so we see Christopher Lee after the woman leaves the first time. He's in shadow on top of the stairs, and he quickly almost glides down the stairs with his cape. It almost looks like he floats down mm -hmm. the stairs the way he does it. And he like comes in one continuous shot, comes straight up to the camera, and his like face is right in the camera. I mean, it's just like he just dominates the screen. He's a huge, big, tall guy anyway, and he's just he's, he's just like oozing, you know, ominous presence. It's great, the, the, both the actor and the character. Um, his his costume's not as ornate as like Bella Lugosi. He doesn't have like formal opera wear like right. he did. He's just very simple black with the the shock of the white shirt through it. And and in the novel, Dracula is just described as basically wearing just black. So this is pretty close. Uh, close to the novel. He doesn't have the bushy mustache and hairy palms and he's not, because Dracula is described when you first meet him in the novel is very, actually pretty hideous looking. I mean, he's not monstrous, but he's just kind of, you know. Mm. So it's, it's funny too, you know, the few lines that Christopher Lee has are to Harker when, you know, they're, they're exchanging pleasantries and, but you get the impression that he's, He's doing this because he has to keep up this pretense. There's this definite, you know, I'm just doing this right now because later I'm going to just rip your throat out. You know, <laughs> it's just you get that feeling from him, mm. you know, which is great. Uh, you know, he's definitely not the smooth continental that uh, that Bela Lugosi played. It's funny in Harker's room, <laughs> despite that there's fireplace, you can see both uh, uh, John Van Eisen, the played Harker, and... Uh, and Christopher leaves breath as they, as, as they're, uh, again, why was the woman dressed all like greasy? I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm disturbed by that. Yeah. Uh, you, you brought up, you know, Harker, Dracula asked Harker about Lucy's photo and, and that he has the photo out. That's, that is kind of, why would you do that? Uh, clearly, Clearly, Van Helsing picked the wrong guy to send the castle Dracula. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. I mean, that's just basically what you get out of this. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll help you. And it's like, yeah, it's the wrong dude, you know. Uh, but uh, but you can just see when he asks, because we we don't know yet that, that he knows about Dracula, but he's just got this look of, like, oh, crap, on his face when Dracula asks about her, like, oh, you know. Again, why would you put... Your loved one's yeah. picture out there. You know, no. Yeah. Later on, we briefly see Dracula leaving the castle. And uh, you see his cape billowing. And, and 
and actually that's a, for for us comic fans that's cool because um, Neil Adams has said he was influenced by the way Christopher Lee worked his cape and the way he drew Batman. Of course, you know Neil Adams was the first artist in years to do anything with Batman's cape and really make it look like it's you know its own character with its own life as it moved around him. So uh, that's another comic connection there. The woman, the the female vampire who uh, was played by Valerie Gaunt, we forgot to mention that, she may be the first vampire, at least the first one in a Dracula film, to actually bear fangs. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Bela Lugosi and none of the other vampires in the Universal movies ever had fangs. You know, and then shortly after we see her, and she basically just nicks uh, uh, Harker. She doesn't really sink her teeth in. or right. They don't show it anyway. Uh, you get the first vampiric appearance of Christopher Lee. You know, he hisses and there's this huge close-up of him with his, you know, blood-soaked fangs and his bloodshot eyes. And it's a really shocking scene. And it's it's very iconic and it, it still works. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty freaky. <laughs> and uh, he actually, yeah, the, the, the tussle they have, I mean, you just get the... He's such a you know long lean figure. He really plays like this. This that you're dealing with this animalistic, otherworldly creature. You know, it's it, it doesn't just seem like some tall guy in a suit. You know, hissing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really sells that. Oh, this guy's like a monster. <laughs> you know, with very little makeup. You know, not a lot of uh, you know just the just the fangs and the contact. When Harker wakes up and. And, you know, his, his despondence over his situation is... Which makes you wonder, did he get vampirized by the woman? Because did she really sink her teeth into him? Or did Dracula Later, vampirize him? He still looked like he had the same amount of blood from when she got him. But that does, you beg a question, you know, how many bites does it take to get the Tootsie Roll Center of vampirism? <laughs> because uh, he seems like he's concerned that he's going to become a vampire now because he's just been bitten. Now, clearly his blood wasn't sucked enough to for him to die. And, uh, you know, that's usually the way that, you know, you, 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 if you die from blood loss by a vampire or they share their blood with you, you become a vampire. Uh, but this movie, you know, in a lot of later films, one bite will get you, you know, and that's, I think, maybe what's going on here. Although we see later with Lucy and Mina, it's a, it's a slow process. Well, here's the thing. I mean, it seems like, you know, you always hear that three nights, you know, three bites or whatever. Yeah. Um, you think about it. If the woman bit him mm -hmm. and then Dracula bites him before he throws him in that room. Yeah. And then he Dracula bites him again. And then he bites him again. That would be your three. No, that's true. So they don't really go over the exact rules. Rules, right. But, I mean, so, you know, that would fit and, you know, standard canon. And you go by other things. They had the, you know, the, the shared blood and the vampire shared his blood and also drained the person of blood and they died. And, you know, because in the book, that's how Mina is saved because she didn't die, but Lucy did die from the blood loss. And mm -hmm. so that's why she becomes a vampire. Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> One other thing that's consistent is Hammer never did see, seem to know where the heart was when when Harker places the stake, which should be over the vampire woman's chest. 
He it's puts like it over her stomach. It's two inches under her boob. It's under her boob. And the <laughs> only thing I can figure is because she does have bare cleavage, and I didn't figure they could get away with right. that. Uh, now, when they show the old crone laying there, it's actually where it should be, in her chest. Uh, but uh, in, even in later years, when, you know, in The Vampire Lovers, where where uh, Ingrid Pitt is, like, nude, completely nude in that film, later on when they stake her they still get her underneath her boobs. I mean, you know, they just show her coming out of a bathtub buck naked, but they can't show her sticking us in. It's like, okay. Which we almost, uh, we almost did that one, but that, that, we had to put the explicit tag on that episode. Especially about, never mind. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's carry on with this. Okay. okay. You know, the, the look on Dracula's face as he hears the, his his vampire bride being staked. He's, it's like one of horror and anger, but then as he sees the sun go down, he gets, he gets this really evil smile on his face. It's like, oh. And again, how much of a genius is Harker? He knew it was close to sundown. Yeah. Why did he? Oh, I have 15 minutes before sundown, and I'm going down where there's two vampires. And you know what? I'm going to stake the weak vampire first. And then when I have a minute left, then maybe I'll get to Dracula, the big baddie. Well, you know, it was probably something like this. It was like, you know, Harker's like, I, you know, boss, I think, I think I'm ready. I, I think I'm ready to go after a big vampire. And, you know, and then I'm saying, are you sure? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I know I am. I, I can do it. It's like, well, I'm not really certain you're prepared quite ready. So, oh, I can do it. I can Bad, big mistake. He wasn't ready for the promotion. <laughs> Why didn't he, like, lay a cross? If he didn't want to get vamp Dracula first, lay a freaking cross on him. You know, where's he going to go? He can't touch That's it. That's true. He's going to just, true. and then, then come back and stake him. Or do that to her while you stake him. You I know? think we're overthinking. We're way overthinking. It's your fault. <laughs> well, honey, this is my job. I know, it's your mutant power, but... Uh, you're going to ruin everything I ever loved to watch by doing this show because then I can't stop thinking. It was your it. idea to include me, so deal with it and suck it up, boy. <laughs> oh, but anyway, let's see. Harker, when Dracula appears in the doorway, Harker drops his hammer and stake. And again, I guess he doesn't have a cross on him or anything like that. But, it, you know, did, was it out of fear? Or did Dracula, like, compel him to do so? You know, I kind of wonder. But, well, my my idea is, you know, he's staking her, and then he turns around, and the castle, the excuse me, the coffin's empty, and then suddenly, you know, Dracula appears at the foot of the stairs, and, you know, getting ready to come down. What did he have to do? Did he have to go out and take a vampire pee before he came back to come <laughs> get him, or what? <laughs> I think he was shutting the outer door so he wouldn't escape. I, that That's my thought, but it is kind of odd. I mean, I think it was just for the dramatic effect, but it yeah. made me think. Oh, he had to go pee-pee before he came back and killed hold on, Hold on just one minute. I have to make wee-wee. Oh, no, he hadn't been asleep all day. So. <laughs> That's right. Well, he is getting on in years. He probably had to get up at least once in the night. And oh, kind of like you do. <laughs> oh, nice. Very nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> over 20 minutes into the film, we finally meet the, the headlining star, Peter Cushing. I'm a real big fan of Peter Cushing anyway, and I love his Van Helsing because he plays him as a very dedicated vampire hunter, but he's still very compassionate. He doesn't go over that line of of, of zealot, you know. He's he he does is mindful of other people, mm. 
his feelings and things as as it progresses. He, but it's it's obvious that the the people in the village of Kleisenberg, they they know Dracula and they know of of his evil and, and so Van Helsing can't understand you know, why you know why are these people? I, see, I don't either. What do they have to lose? Well, they're, they're just so much. scared of him. I mean, they've just been living there. I mean, you know, they they're used to like you know every so often one of them disappears and well. Yeah, but that, that's my point. Here you have an outsider that they have no ties to that's willing to go up against Dracula with no risk to them. You know, because if he dies, hey, we didn't know him. You know, he, he just did it on his own. Well, if we know anything about Hammer or Universal movies, that European villagers are a bunch of fickle, you know, mush heads. So, you know, you can't expect a whole lot of them. Then they turn it, you know, they turn it to drop the hat and get torches and pitchforks and... You know, they get brave in mob mentality, but they also cower in fear and sit around in pubs and gripe about it, but they don't do anything about it. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so the carriage, when Van Helsing goes to the castle and the carriage run by with the hearse, uh, I mean the hearse and with the coffin in it, I, I double checked to make sure that wasn't Lee on top of the, of the uh, carriage because it was some other guy because... In the novel and other adaptations, he is the character driver. Dracula is he does he you know in the in the skies more or less. Mm -hmm. In the next film with Lee, he actually does have an assistant. Maybe that's this guy. I don't know that so, that it's, it's it's as if he had been there the whole time, but we never see him in this movie. Harker had in Harker's room. Van Helsing finds the picture frame with a little piece of picture still in it. That's a nice you know telegraph of mm -hmm. what's going to happen when. Cushing finds Harker in the coffin, and uh, as a vampire, you can just see on his face that he his guilt over bringing him into it. He doesn't say a word, but you can just read it like, mm. "Oh, what have I done?" You know. And yeah, you definitely picked the wrong guy to go there. Um, so then we jump to uh, a few days later to the uh, Homewood home, and we meet Mina, who's played by Melissa Stribling. And Arthur, who is very important to comic book fans, is played by none other than Michael Goff, who was Alfred in the first four big-budget Batman films. Michael Keaton through George Clooney. Mm -hmm. When you first meet him, he's very upset, and, and rightfully so, with, uh, with uh, Van Helsing, because he's not getting the whole picture. But he, he plays the uh, you know stiff upper lip Britishman with, uh, with, you know, very well, but he's also, you get to like him and, and sympathize with him as well. So he, he's really good in this, but I always liked him as Alfred. So it was when the first time I saw this, uh, I think it was after Batman. I, I may have, yeah, I know it was. I was probably a few years after that. I think TNT or one of those cable channels used to play it. And I'm like, I instantly knew who he was. You can tell who he is. Just his face is still the same, and 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 uh, his voice is the same. Lucy, when they when we see her, she seems quite conflicted in her role as as Dracula's you know current neck de jour because you know when Arthur and Mina are in there, she seems fine, but as soon as they leave, she like hops up and she's like preparing the room for Dracula, but at the same time, she's almost like hyperventilating. It's like she's you know vacillating between being scared to death and being extremely well let's face it horny uh because <laughs> uh the sexual overtones of, of vampirism are 
right at the forefront in this movie. You know, they'd maybe been hinted at in some of the Universal, but they couldn't get away with that stuff back then uh, because, you know, there you get this anticipatory buildup and the music swells and then there's this big musical climax as Dracula bends over him. So, you I mean, you get the whole, like, the whole, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The deed. Yeah. <laughs> there's some neat scenes where Van Helsing's listening to his notes on, like, a phonographic uh, device. And uh, that actually comes from the novel, but that's Dr. Seward in the novel that does that. And uh, we meet Dr. Seward later. He's barely in this. He's just, like, the family doctor. He's the... No real your important. standard doctor. He's just your standard doctor. They just use the name in the in the book. He's an important character of the 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 characters that become the vampire hunters, including Homewood and Harker, who of course <clears throat> lives in the novel. So uh, Van Helsing has a line about uh, about victims of vampirism having similarities to drug addicts, and that seems like that's an attempt to ground the whole vampire lore a little bit. They also later on say that them changing into bats and wolves is a common fallacy. Mm-hmm. Peter Cushing says, uh, so, you know, they're, they're definitely trying to tone down the more extreme aspects. And then also by, you know, uh, bringing in the whole drug addiction angle, they're, they're trying to make it a little more relatable. The, the little girl, Tanya played by Janine Faye, she seems a bit young to be the daughter of, Gerda, the the maid, who seems quite a bit older, but I think she's basically in this movie, so the Lucy parts will be a lot creepier. So there's a connection there. Yeah. Lucy and and Mina refer to Van Helsing as Dr. Helsing at one point, which is is like Van, his first name. I mean, (laughs) Hammer played really fast and loose with Van Helsing's name. They don't even give it in here, even in the credits. Mm -hmm. It's just Dr. Van Helsing. and, And as Peter Cushing plays... Van Helsing and then later his descendants, they really just can't seem to remember what his name is from one movie to the next anyway. Lucy's, you know, again, when Dracula comes the last time to Lucy, she really seems just horrified, but also just, you know, she's, her chest is just heaving up and down and, and, you know, it's, it's the, the actress really does a really, really good job of portraying the, the kind of where she's stuck between you know, her, her, uh, will being dominated right. and then, you know, and her real self, you know, unable to fight it. The scenes with Lucy in the graveyard are, are, they're, they're very eerie, uh, very effectively done. The only downside is when you see Lucy and Tanya, uh, in the woods, Hammer had a bad habit of doing day for night shots mm-hmm. and they would kind of put a little bit of a blue filter on it, but it never was enough you know it, it always looked like oh well they shot that in the daytime you yeah. know or it you know at, at dusk i mean it just it, it never was you didn't buy the night thing. no no when uh van helsing uh actually he you know takes the cross and burns lucy's forehead with it and a really cool scene and and her reaction and and michael goff's reaction her, her brother uh, a really great. I mean, he actually like you know runs his fingers through his hair and winces and closes his eyes. I mean, it's you, you know you you could just imagine being in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very well done. And then you know Van Helsing runs over and, and comforts Tanya, the little girl, and puts his coat around her. It it, it endears you to Van Helsing right. even more that he would take the time to do that. It gives her his crucifix. 
he actually says you look like a little teddy bear. Well, I, I don't think no, there have been teddy bears then. There wasn't. The no, teddy bear was not no. introduced until 1904 because it was based on and Teddy, teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Then the bear he found at uh, some... Well, the, during a hunting expedition. Yeah, he saved a cub or something, yeah. But that was, um, it's either 1902 or 1904. Yeah, and this was 1885. I want to say yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're about almost 20 years ahead of time. Right, right. So, you know, Van Helsing initially suggests letting Lucy free, lead them to Dracula, but Homewood won't, isn't, it won't have it, you know, and this, that this, this shows that he's not as fanatical as some interpretations of a, of Van Helsing or a vampire hunter are when they stake Lucy. Her screams are just, just, a, just she's a heck of a screamer. I use that in the trailer too. Uh, now the faces she makes, uh, just maybe a little over the top, hammy, but right. but you know, I mean, you know, she was laying in a coffin with fangs in her mouth. I mean, how do you how do you go subtle with that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll forgive her. You know, when the Homewood agrees to help Van Helsing, and they go uh, try to track down where this hearse went with the coffin, and they go to this official. You know, he's kind of the com a comic relief type character. Most of those in Hammer movies later on were played by an actor named Michael Ripper. And uh, the guys at uh, the 1951 Down Place podcast are, are, are big fans of him and Cushing and Lee, but of Cushing and Ripper especially. We'll talk about those guys later. That is a great, if you like this discussion about Hammer, go check those guys out. But uh, Michael Ripper was in just almost every Hammer film showing up somewhere or another. And it, it's kind of like, you want if you know anything about Hammer, you want him to be that guy in this movie. You're like, well, why didn't I get Michael Ripper? But anyway, you remember how we said Bride of Frankenstein was connected to the 1951 Scrooge with mm -hmm. Alistair Sim? Well, this movie is too, because the Undertaker that that uh, Van Helsing and Homewood go see is played by a guy named uh, Miles Mallison, and he played the pawn shop owner. In the 1951 Scrooge, and he actually shared a scene with Ernest Thessinger, mm -hmm. who was Doctor Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein that we talked about last. So night. basically, the Kevin Bacon factor. It's the Kevin Bacon factor. It's the it's the Doctor Pretorius factor. I just wanted to do that one more time. So. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I am. <laughs> so then Mina becomes a victim of Dracula, and boy, she when she comes back in, you know, after you know she's been out and she went to the Undertaker and and Dracula, obviously, you know, you just see him open a coffee. You don't know what he did to her, but obviously he bit her or something. She walks in and, man, she just looks like she just had herself one hell of a time, didn't she? <laughs> she's very satisfied acting. She She's like, damn, she's got the afterglow going on, you know? Yes. She does. She does. <laughs> but... Um, one uh, one really cool scene is you know they go outside and wait. They think you know well Dracula can't get in if we if we you know are both sides of the house. He's not gonna be able to get past us because we've established he can't turn into bats and rats and mist and all that stuff. Little do they know he's in the house. Mm -hmm. And you know she Mina goes around and opens things the house you know closes the window and all and then goes and opens the door and there she's standing at the foot of the stairs and. As he comes up the stairs at her, he's got this really wicked look of, you know, grin on his face. And and uh, she's got that whole quivering and anticipation and horror thing going on at the same time. Both actresses, they do a really great 
job of, of you know, bringing that whole horror and sexual tension at the same time thing going on. So then uh, Van Helsing sets up a blood transfusion to save her. That was also using a novel to save Lucy mm-hmm. uh, at one point. And I, I believe those were, blood transfusions were a new thing. At they the time. were. And, uh, you know, Stoker was kind of, he was, he was up on some of that, uh, some modern technology at the time. Uh, I think it's kind of neat too, because, um, you can almost think of, you know, Arthur Homewood giving her transfusion kind of cleansed her improper act out of her, you know, Mm. her tainted blood (laughs) from Dracula. The moment that Van Helsing realizes that Dracula may be in the cellar and springs up from his chair the climax just it, the music just starts and it's like and you just get that from the, yeah. through the rest of the movie and it's just this 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 pulse pounding score by Bernard it just it, it's just it, it it adds to the height of anxiety as you get toward the end um, <laughs> it is funny when they run upstairs and Gerd is all hysterical after Dracula takes Mina and Van Helsing gets to slap her. <laughs> <laughs> he never gets old when you see somebody get hysterical when he gets a slap on. Oh yeah. <laughs> the 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 we see the official that I think should have been played by Michael Ripper again and he's like yelling over because they come through his crossing you know, his crossing guard arm comes down and first Dracula goes through it and busts it and he repairs it and then Van Helsing comes through it. And uh, it's a little it's a, I think it's just to kind of lighten the mood just a little bit, to, yeah. you know, because it was getting pretty intense. And uh, but it, it, it was almost like a, you know, one of the James Well type characters that Universal would throw in there, like an Una O'Connor or something. So when Van Helsing and Homewood pull up to the castle, they see Dracula digging this shallow grave, and he picks up Mina or their Stribling's uh, stunt double and dumps her in the grave. I mean, hard. I mean, I hope there was a mattress down there. Yeah, really. And actually, according to IMDb, on the first take of that, Lee tripped and fell in on top of that stunt woman. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so. So, what was the point of putting her in a... The only thing I can figure is he they just got there too soon. If he had, if they hadn't seen what he was doing, where they probably wouldn't have found her before she suffocated. Mm. And then she would have been dead, and having been vampirized, she'd been a vampire, according to probably their rules. In this movie, or even if she wasn't, he could come back and get her later, you know. So, uh, you know, I don't know if he'd want, you know, if it wasn't fresh, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the, so, the chase through the castle is just flat out awesome. Uh, when Lee's, like, climbing those stairs, he looks like he takes, like, ten at a time because his legs are so long. I did have to wonder, though, they get in this great struggle, and clearly Van Helsing's outmatched. He doesn't have superhuman strength like a vampire. But he passes out, but I've always wondered, is he, because he kind of gives this look before he looks like he passes out. Did he really pass out and come back to, or was he playing possum just long enough? Oh, playing possum. That's I what, don't have any doubt about that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I always thought, too. But So he throws him off, and uh, as Dracula's approaching him, he, you see this. there's this real quick scene where he like rubs his neck as Van Helsing, as if to say, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is it, you know, this is what's next. And then he sees the light coming through the curtain, and he jumps up on the table, this huge long table, and he runs across the table, and he makes a leap for the curtain, and pulls it down. and And, and I don't know if it was, uh, you, know, you see Christopher Lee hits the floor before he even 
like he knows what's going to happen before the curtains completely fall, but then the sunlight hits him, and then he just, you know, starts first his foot, you know, he's screaming, and his foot, like, starts to rot away. And, yeah, that's cool. And uh, then his hands, and, and, it, and, and there's actually a cut that was recently discovered. It's out on a Blu-ray. I don't have it. I have just the cheapo Ford Dracula movies on the DVD version. You see that those shots are, they've got just a, like a half, another half second to them. You actually see the pants leg pull away from the leg. Like mm-hmm. his leg's completely gone. And like his hand that does it, his hand's completely gone. Is just, you know, he puts the hand down in the sun and it, the skin like comes off of it. And then it, right. you know, he pulls it away. And there's actually another scene, uh, you know, we're going to bring up in a minute the part that kind of kills this just a little bit. Uh, but your favorite part. Mm. <laughs> but there's a scene where you see Dracula's in this extended cut. You see Dracula's face, and it, it, it looks like his face is just like rotting away. And then he takes his hand, his one good hand, and like he's rubbing it across his face and actually peels some of his skin off as he's just, you know, writhing in pain as he's burning. And then we get to the part that, what did you say it looked like? It looks like a Muppet. <laughs> yeah, his his skull with the ash on it. I think it's the eyes. I think if they just had sunken in skull sockets. But it looks like a little Muppet, you know, like the little, um, oh, it looks like Beaker <laughs> on the Muppet. It looks like a gray Beaker. <laughs> That's what it looks like. I'm Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, and today we're going to show you how to destroy a vampire with sunlight. (laughs) Looks like a gray beaker. (laughs) But other than that, it's really cool, especially where, you know, Van Helsing coming down from the table, picks up the two candlesticks and makes the makeshift cross on it. That's iconic look for Cushing. In fact, they even made a bust of Van Helsing in that pose. It's just really cool. And, you know, Hugh Jackman wishes he was as cool as Peter Van, as Peter. Oh, Christian yeah. I mean, you know I'm a huge, Jack, huge, Hugh Jackman fan. And no. No, he can't. Uh, he ain't He ain't half the Van Helsing that Peter Cushing is. He's the man. In fact, in the next movie, well, we're jumping ahead a little bit. But, but uh, at the end, you see Dracula's ring and his clothes and his ashes as they blow away, you know. Which they kind of aped at the end of Flash Gordon, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with Ming's ring. There's no laugh at the end of this one, but the ashes and the ring and the clothes will all be important in the next movie that Lee's in as Dracula. And even in subsequent movies, they will come up, taste the blood of Dracula. They actually like use his ashes and, you know, bring it back, things like that. So the first actual sequel to this came out in 1960 is Brides of Dracula. And Dracula's not in it, <laughs> which is just weird. That's the one with the Baron Meinster, blonde vampire. Mm. Uh, Peter Cushing is Van Helsing, and it's a real good showcase for him. It includes the totally awesome scene where he cauterizes his vampire wound with a hot crucifix. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> Christopher Lee finally came back, and uh, along with Fisher and Sangster, who also did Brides of Dracula, uh, in Dracula, Prince of Darkness in 1965. So after that, he came back more often. Uh, there was Dracula's Risen from the Grave in 68, Taste of Blood of Dracula in 1970, The Scars of Dracula in 1971. <clears throat> and then finally, in 1972, you had Dracula AD 1972, 
which had Peter Cushing back as a descendant of Van Helsing, and that continued into the Satanic Rites of Dracula, a.k.a. Count Dracula and his Vampire Bride. Those two movies were set in modern times, um, like I said, with, with Dracula as, as, with Van Helsing's descendant. And there was one more Hammer Dracula film uh, that was the uh, infamous The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula, more commonly known as The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. That's the Kung Fu one I watched not that long ago. Oh my god. You got the DVD for me for Christmas. I realized that, <laughs> but that, oh. <laughs> but Peter Cushing's in it, and he's great. And he's getting on in years by that point. It's probably a li just a little bit before Star Wars. Christopher Lee's like, no. And he didn't play Dracula in that. It was some other guy who wasn't nearly as impressive. Amazing. No. And uh, actually, Christopher Lee played vampires in other films. He actually played Dracula. I haven't seen this. I've seen parts of it in a movie called, uh, it's a Spanish film called El Conde Dracula or Count Dracula. That is is was meant to be very strictly adherent to the Stoker novel. In fact, Lee's got the droopy mustache and all that. And he ages, de-ages as he gets blood and sustenance, yeah. as in the novel. But it's, uh, I haven't seen it. I've heard it starts out good and then starts to fall apart toward the end, but I've never seen it. And, of course, both those guys went on to be in Star Wars films as, right. as Grand Moff Tarkin and Count Dooku, so... Uh, Hammer didn't just do Dracula. They had the the Karnstein series that was the Vampire Lovers of Carmilla uh, based on that. Um, and they did other vampire movies. But Dracula was kind of their, their go-to bread and butter for a long time. The one thing about Hammer films, I think that's really apparent in this one, that's lost on modern horror movies is no matter how bad the evil was in the movie... Good always triumphed in the end. I mean, they usually had some losses, like you lost Harker, and you you know they, they they didn't completely win, but they did succeed and destroy them at least until the next movie. And you just don't you know get that. I mean, nowadays if a, the the heroine wins in a horror movie at the last in the last frame, she gets you know run through or mm -hmm. you know before the credits roll. So it's kind of funny to take uh, if you're a fan of Dracula and you know the book, it's fun to look at the movies and see how they mix and match the characters. Because here you've got Harker, he is engaged to Lucy, and Homewood, Arthur Homewood's married to Mina, whereas in the novel, Harker is engaged to Mina, and Homewood's engaged to Lucy. And Lucy dies, and Harker lives, and so Harker and Mina are married, and... <laughs> okay, it just, make, it just makes my head hurt. <laughs> and then in other versions, it gets even worse, because you've got... Uh, a real standout is the Frank Langella Dracula, which is actually really good. You know, I, I hadn't seen it in years, and I watched it a few years ago, and I was surprised how well I liked it. Uh, but it's really weird, because Dr. S Dr. Uh, Seward is, let me try to get this straight, Lucy's father, and she's like the main female lead in it. Mina is vampirized and dies in a really super creepy scene in the sewer later, and her dad is Van Helsing. 
Right. So it's like, what? But <laughs> if Bram Stoker's Dracula does actually get the characters the way they are in the book, mostly. Mm-hmm. And then it starts screwing around with the whole love story between Vlad and Mina's, you know, original. She was Elizabeth and is reincarnated and blah, blah. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. I love Gary Oldman, but, you know, sorry, that's just... I like that part so much. I like the movie, but that part... This is how Dracula is in the book. This is why I like Christopher Lee. He is just an evil bastard. That's the way Dracula is supposed to be. I like Bram Stoker's Dracula. I like it except the mushy stuff. Oh! (laughs) I don't mind mushy stuff, but it... It's just added on. But anyway, we're going to take a break here and then we'll come back for our comic book, which actually ties into this movie in a pretty cool way, like I promised last time. Our trailer is going to be for the 1951 Down Place uh, podcast that I mentioned. That is hosted by some great guys that know a whole lot more about Hammer movies than than we do. Uh, But uh, so if you want more Hammer discussion, check that out and listen to the trailer and find out how to get there. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer? Wasn't that an 80s cop show on ABC with David Raish? This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that was Sledgehammer. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Okay, we're back. And we're going to talk about Detective Comics number 455 from January 1976, which of course stars Batman. And the story is called Heart of a Vampire. And the cover and art in the story is by Mike Grell. Story by Elliot S. Magan and editing by Julia Schwartz. You want to do the synopsis? Miles away from Gotham City, near an old abandoned house, Bruce Wayne's car breaks down. He and his faithful butler, Alfred, make their way to the boarded-up house in search of water for their radiator. Breaking into the long-deserted home, the two are shocked to find a coffin in the living room, bathed in the light of an early solar light. Bruce accidentally turns off the light, and he sends Alfred back to the car for a flashlight. As Bruce continues his search for water, the coffin slowly opens, and a claw-like hand emerges. Finding all the faucets capped, Bruce is confronted by the man of the house, a real-life vampire. Momentarily surprised, Wayne backs into the darkness and emerges as the Batman. The Dark Knight attacks the undead being, but he is no match for his strength. The vampire identifies himself as one Gustav de Cobra, and that name seems familiar to Batman. 
The caped crusader repels the monster with some beams in the shape of the cross, but a bumbling Alfred causes him to drop it. De Cobra lunges at the Dark Knight, and confident that he is dealing with the undead, Batman impales the vampire on a large wooden stake. But this has no effect on De Cobra, who claims to have removed his own heart. Batman and Alfred retreat to the attic, where the masked man in her recalls that Gustav de Cobra was a brilliant surgeon a century ago. He's, his advanced theories on heart transplants were deemed too radical for the times, and he was booted from Cornell University. Legend had it that de Cobra continued his experiments via grave robbing, but one day just disappeared. Batman postulates that de Cobra unknowingly disturbed the grave of a vampire, which led him to his current vampire state. Batman and Alfred discuss the rules and powers of vampires as we know them, and how de Cobra has used his medical expertise to remove his own heart. If Batman can give the monster a good workout, he may be able to locate the remote but beating heart. Just then, de Cobra breaks in with a swarm of bats, and the fight is continued once more. Batman takes up a bow and arrow, while Decobra uses his transmutation powers to pull a shovel from a painting on the wall. As the two battle on, Batman takes note of a rapidly beating grandfather clock. As their struggle becomes more and more heated, the clock ticks louder and louder. In a last-ditch effort, the Gotham Guardian fires his arrow at the clock face. Immediately, Decobra screams in pain and then ages into a smoldering skeleton. Batman and Alfred return to their car and leave the nightmarish countryside behind. Okay, the cool part about this that ties this into the movie is, according to artist Mike Grell, which this comes from the uh, Michael Urie and Michael Cronenberg's Batcave Companion by Two Morrows, Grell was not the original artist assigned to this story. It was actually horror master Bernie Wrightson who created very detailed thumbnails, but they were very small. Uh, Wrightson was unable to complete the issue, and Grell took those thumbnails and created the finished art. Uh, he regrets that Wrightson didn't get any credit on the story. But the real cool thing about it is that uh, Grell was a huge fan of the horror of Dracula. And so when this story came to him, he cast Christopher Lee as the Cobra. And he dug up every photo uh, from the movie he could find. And I imagine that was pretty hard in the days before Yeah, before Google. you could just go to the computer and pull them up. And Google, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Editor Julius Schwartz called foul on this and uh, had him change the artwork, I guess fearing, you know, legal repercussions. Right, right. Had him change the artwork, change his hair, add the scar. He's got a scar that runs across his, uh, above his eye, down his cheek. But fans still saw it as Lee, so it didn't really matter. Not only did that make, that made it perfect to talk about for this issue, but you also, in the horror of Dracula, you had Alfred versus Dracula. And in this book, you have Dracula versus Batman and Alfred. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> uh, And it's also rare that Alfred even got a cover appearance. But on the cover, he's shown prone as the vampire attacks. The cobra is leaping from the coffin, and Batman's got a lantern in his hand. He looks very startled. Uh, the coffin almost looks like a doorway, like the cobra's like leaping from some nightmarish world. It actually fits in better with the the horror theme cover from the early seventies. DC, like really, DC both DC and Marvel went through a phase. the The comics code lacks their their stance on vampires and werewolves and zombies and things, and they were able to use horror elements again 
in mainstream comics and they went nuts and even your average comic had some kind of spooky atmosphere it's about it, on, at least on the cover. According to Mike's Amazing World of, of Comics, this issue was released on October 28th, 1975, which is cutting it a little close, but obviously... Yeah, for Halloween. Halloween yeah. time. Uh, the first panel on page two uh, would have worked well on a Halloween treat bag of the 70s. It's got dead trees, swirling fog, and a huge orange moon behind yeah, it. Yeah, I thought about that too. Man. Shadowy old house on the hill. It looks like those treat bags we used to get. Yeah, when we were kids. Yeah. <laughs> so you... Not only does the Cobra look like Lee, but the furniture in the, the living room looks a lot like, you know, the room itself looks a lot like Horror of Dracula the Castle. It's kind of funny, though, because Bruce comments that... Well, before we get to that, about when they're in the house, what about, I mean, now you think about this. I mean, this disturbs me because you're talking about, you know, he has Alfred go back to the car for the flashlight. Why didn't they have the flashlight with them when they walked to the house? I don't know. I kind of Because, you know, think about that. And he's supposed to be all prepared and, you know, ready for any... I mean, he's Batman. He's supposed to have, you know... He he carries shark repellent bat spray when he goes to the ocean. Come <laughs> on. And he doesn't take a flashlight with him to walk to this house? That's... that. I, I kind of wondered that, too. They should have had, oh, a flashlight battery ran out. Go back and get a, the other flashlight or something, but... You know, it was only a 12-page story, so they didn't have a whole lot of time to do it in. But, I wouldn't have. Yeah, anyway, but anyway. I'm sorry, that's my, my logic for the day. Okay, well, I know you'll get to another part that kind of like, what, later, but anyway. Uh, Bruce comments that they have some rather bizarre taste in lamps and coffee tables. Does he really think that that coffin is just there for decoration? I mean, what you'd be like, why is there a coffin in the middle? I mean, if they, well, one would think. They, they seem to be a little blasé about that. You know, he messes with the solar lights and and accidentally uh, turns it off and the lock on the coffin drops off without opening uh this is actually lifted directly from rides of dracula really? so yeah so that's uh that's the sequel that we talked about that has no dracula but van helsing in the first panel we see of decobra he definitely looks like christopher lee there <laughs> even with his hair changed and the scar oh yeah there's, I mean, no, there's no doubt there's no doubt just the look on his face i mean you can even recognize some of the stills you've seen as we go along here the faucets are capped uh, as bruce checks them out because vampires can't cross running water i do have that you know if that's the case you know a lot of times that's brought up sometimes it's not apparently now dracula didn't seem to have a whole lot of problem with it because he went across the bridge, you know, with the running water there. Now, actually, in Prince of Darkness, that stream, he actually ends up going into the stream and gets frozen. And, you know, it, it mobilizes him. Mm -hmm. And then later on, he's thawed out in another movie, kind of like Captain America. You know? mm. But uh, <laughs> you can you can detect some of Wrightson's layout, especially the panels where there's these, these several small, thin panels that you see the shock on Bruce's face. And he kind of recedes into the darkness, and, and it looks very Wrightson-like, and then he, you know, leaps back out as Batman. Um, this is actually Grell's first shot at, at drawing Batman, and he's got a definite Neil Adams, Jim Aparo influence. But at that time, if you were going to draw Batman, that's who you that's follow. Who you'd follow, yeah, um, and who you should well, still follow. Here's my question about the whole comic. Okay. Who put him? in the coffin and put the chains on him and put the solar light on him. Yeah. Well, think about it. 
if somebody if somebody before had you know fought him if they never figured out where his heart was they couldn't stake him so what else would they have done with him you know i guess they could have decapitated him but that you don't see that brought up as in fact they should have decapitated the characters in in the horror of dracula if they didn't want him coming back but because why didn't somebody just pull the stake out of him but you know but anyway but you know they couldn't he had no heart to put a stake through so that was a way to just basically immobilize him but why not just i mean this is why not have that on him have that light on him like have it plugged in with an extension cord running up on the porch put his body out and just let the sun get him the very next morning. Ah, <laughs> uh, good question. I don't know. Because if you could immobilize him enough to put him in the coffin. Well, that's I like. That's one of the kind of things I like about this story is you're just kind of you and Bruce and Alfred are just dropped in the middle. I mean, like it's just it's it's just this. It's a random stop along the road, and you go into this house. I think that's what's so neat about it. It's a very you know, like, don't, you know, they took the wrong turn down the wrong road and they ended up in this situation. I, I think that's... It's kind of like Scooby-Doo in the game. Yeah, in a way, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, Danny watches Scooby-Doo all the time. Well, of course, you know. well, we grew up watching this, so... When Batman holds the Cobra at bay with the cross, that, that scene is taken directly from the scenes with Lee and Cushing at the end of the film where he's got the, the you know, the candlestick cross on him. And then Batman impales the cobra on panel uh which he did in the splash page too which the splash page we forgot to mention it was kind of cool because you got it looked like the bat go was turned into a bat and then the bat was turning into the cobra although we never see him change into a bat in the in the story itself but the fact that he gets impaled twice in the same book is kind of interesting i guess he didn't have a heart but it seems kind of weird that the the comics code would be allow that, that be yeah. that lax but it's on the cover so you know, Batman tells the story of the Cobra to Alfred, and the scene where um, he's digging in the graveyard looks like it was just straight lifted from from Wrights, and I don't see a lot of Grell in that panel. Later on, they're talking. Uh, you know, Batman among his many vampiric powers, Batman says the Cobra may be able to possibly transmute inanimate objects to life. So that is. I'm sorry, I was going what. That's something Magan made up, I'm pretty sure. In fact, I've got a book. Um, I, I don't have it on me in here. The, the Vampire Book. It's this huge, thick book full of entries on vampires, and I apologize for not having it handy. But uh, it actually has a listing for the Cobra in there, it's a, or for Batman, and then it lists his encounters with vampires. And uh, it actually, even that says, you know, that he had the power, of this unique power among vampires that's never been seen. And, in any other story, he, he reaches into a painting and pulls the paintings. A guy with a shovel, he pulls the shovel out and uses it on Batman. I I thought that was just kind of vampires have enough powers without having to add something to yeah, it. Yeah, I just thought that's, that was just that's the one part that kind of like what. But other than that, you know, you get the build up to the you know Batman's getting him worked up. You see tick tick tick, you know, sound effects. I I thought the way that Grail did it. There's some artists like Walt Simonson and Marshall Rogers were both really good about integrating sound effects into the panel, like the design of the panel. Mm. I thought it might have been a little more effective if he did that, because I'll be honest, the first time I read this, which was years and years ago, I didn't even notice the tick, tick, tick at first. I didn't either. 
the first time yeah. I read it, I had to go back and like, oh, okay. Maybe a, a panel of, you know, in between of just, uh, you know, like one or two texts and then another, you know, a panel of him and Batman fighting and then another panel. Yeah, it could have been just Two or three more tick, 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 ticks and then tick, 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 you know, like And had the font be a little bit bigger, you know, each time. Yeah. The shot, you know, Batman pulls out the arrow, shoots the clock, and the shots of, of DeCobra dying in agony are, again, they're directly pulled from stills from the horror mm-hmm. Dracula. I mean, directly, directly. So, you know, it, it, and, and again, the way it ends with them driving away, it's like they left the sanity of the city behind when they came to the country, and now they need to get back to the cold, hard streets of for awesome. a dose of reality. You know, it's... A, it's 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 just a fun Halloween story. It's very unapologetically just you know a really cool vampire, uh, just a little quick trip into vampire territory for Batman, and it really does feel like Batman's in a Hammer movie. I mean, it feels like if if uh, you know if if Adam West and <laughs> had continued playing Batman and. And, you know, they were looking for something to do with him. And, and, right. and Hammer was, obviously, they had no qualms mixing their vampires in with Hong Kong uh, martial arts movies. Yeah. So why not mix it with Batman? I mean, you could you could see you could see this working that way, you know. So uh, How many times has Batman in the comics met a vampire? Or do you well, know? he met a vampire very early. He met the monk. In like Detective Comics number thirty one, and uh, I think it's thirty one, thirty two, off the top of my head. That was just uh, several, just several short issues after the the first appearance of Batman. So, you know, after that, there wasn't a lot of encounters with supernatural and definitely not vampires. But then, a few years after this, they did a, a modern, uh, well, by the eighties, modern uh, retelling of of the Monk storyline in. Batman and Detective, where Batman and Robin actually become vampires briefly, yeah, and are, are pseudo pseudo vampires. No, because uh, I don't have all those because they scared me when I was a kid. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't buy them. I was a weeder. I, I didn't buy them. It's Gene Colan that had drawn Tomb of Dracula mm-hmm. uh, uh, took over Batman. That's one reason why they did it. And Jerry Conway, who initiated Tomb of Dracula, was the writer, and they actually. It was actually pretty creepy for me, you know. It, I was like six or something. You know? oh, it was, yeah. I was real little when that was out, and it, uh, it, it. I didn't buy those. I skipped Batman for several months, and I've never gone back and got them. They, oddly enough, I don't think they've ever reprinted those. And then, of course, you later you got Dracula, Red Rain, Batman, Dracula, where the Elseworlds, where oh, Batman yeah. becomes a vampire. You know, the Kelly Jones artwork and. And all that. So, yeah, there's definitely been... And then they did the Batman, the Batman animated movie with Dracula. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, and, and, and actually, this story would have been great on Batman the Animated Series. Now, they probably wouldn't have done it in the first run, but in the second new Batman Adventures, they, you know, got a little more... They had more freedom. Mm-hmm. They could have pulled this off. I think it would have been a really cool episode for them to do. And um, I actually went back and forth on a Batman story. Well, do this one or do Moon of the Wolf, you know, the Neil Adams drawn story that they did adapt into the animated series with the werewolf. Oh, okay. The, okay you yeah. know, but that, that episode, as much as I like that story, that episode is one of the, not one of the best. Yeah, Batman it's a weaker anime. one. I mean, 
the for some reason the werewolf when he moves his jaw open it sounds like a rusty hinge or something. I I don't know. <laughs> that's one of the weirdest the things. Sound effects on that or not? Yeah, that's one yes. of the weirdest ones they ever did. But but that's a good segue because speaking of werewolves, next time uh, we're going back to Universal and we're going to talk about. My personal favorite of the Universal Monsters. Mm-hmm. And our son's personal favorite. Our son's personal favorite, The Wolfman, starring Lon Chaney Jr. And actually, our son Andrew will actually be joining us on that episode. So we'll be ripping off Andy Leyland and Michael Leyland for, <laughs> for an episode uh, but uh, or, or two. Uh, we won't get into what the comic is. We'll keep you guessing on that one. But it's going to have a werewolf in it, if you haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, it might. It might. So... You know, if you got any comments on this episode, drop us a line at uh, supermatespodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment at our blog, supermatescomic.blogspot.com. If you feel froggy and want to write a review, drop us one on iTunes. That'd be great. we got a Facebook page. Stop by Facebook. Leave us a comment. Say hi. Like us. All that stuff. If you like us. And <laughs> please like us. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Come back and we'll keep the uh, the crypt doors open at the House of Frankenstein. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide. The fictional characters and events mentioned in this show are trademarked and copyright their respective owners. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their owners, and we mean no infringement by either. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Ultimately, death results from loss of blood. But unlike normal death, no peace manifests itself, for they enter into the fearful state of the undead. Since the death of Jonathan Harker, Count Dracula, the propagator of this unspeakable evil, has disappeared. He must be found and destroyed.